This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is history, genre, and artistic expression. In the first half, Jenny Pulsifer shares her thoughts entitled, Indiana Jones in the Archives, The Art and Adventure. Then in the second half, we will hear from Christopher Crowe with his address entitled, A Novel Idea. I'm here today to explode a myth. History is boring. Those who believe that myth claim that history is a tedious process of memorizing dates and battles and names, apparently for the sole purpose of answering multiple choice questions on an exam. The stereotype of this approach to history is captured in a scene from the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off. The teacher stands before the class droning, In 1930, the Republican-controlled House of Representatives endeavored to alleviate the effects of the... Anyone? Anyone? Great Depression. (laughs) The Hawley Smoot Tariff Act raised or lowered... Anyone? Raised tariffs in an effort to collect more revenues for the federal government. Did it work? Anyone? Anyone? No one answers the questions. Half the students are asleep. The rest are in a boredom-induced stupor. Maybe some of you, too, have been forced to memorize long strings of seemingly useless dates which left you with a distaste for the subject. If all history were presented in written or spoken word like it is in this example, we would be justified in considering history tedious and irrelevant. Not surprisingly, I am here to argue that it is neither. One of my favorite historians, Edmund Morgan, said, history at its best is vicarious experience. In other words, it should be possible by studying history to enter other times and other places, to come close to experiencing the past in the way that those who lived it did. That doesn't sound boring at all. I personally came to history quite late, I had the misfortune to pass an AP history test, which got me out of all the required social science GE courses in college. I was an English major then, rather than a history major. And while I loved reading and writing about great literature, by the end of my four years of undergraduate education, I had developed a real history deficit. I thirsted for context. I wanted to know what was going on in England politically, culturally, socially, when Jane Austen wrote her novels or Shakespeare his plays. That desire eventually led me to pursue a Ph.D. in history. And once I was well immersed in my program, I discovered that I had a passion for archival research. I found it a great adventure. Adventure may not seem like an appropriate word for archival research, Adventure evokes daring, dangerous, heart-pumping thrills, epitomized by the archaeologist adventure hero Indiana Jones. Here, fresh from snatching a priceless gold artifact from a Mayan treasure trove, he's doing his best to get out alive, while hundreds of booby traps, including a house-sized boulder, go off all around him. Archival research, on the other hand, is most often done sitting down, a position in which your pulse is not generally racing. (laughs) Library shelves rarely threaten to crush you to death, and the hissing behind your ear is not the whir of poison darts rushing toward you, 
but the sound of a fan circulating the dusty air. Frankly, I'm grateful that I've never had to flee from a giant boulder while on a research trip. And I don't do a lot of running other than on the hotel treadmill. Actually, I just walk fast. <laughs> Nevertheless, I consider archival research an adventure, one that has frequently set my pulse racing, not because of the fight-or-flight reflex, but because of the thrill of discovery. Let me discuss just two aspects of adventure I find in historical research. First, it is an adventure to solve historical puzzles. Anyone who has taken a history class has probably heard the phrase historical context. Sam Weinberg, author of Historical Thinking, points out that context comes from the Latin word contexere, which means to weave together to engage in an active process of connecting things in a pattern. In an archive, everything is disconnected. You have thousands, perhaps millions of scraps of paper, letters, military orders, court depositions, receipts, orders to constables. You can approach that vast pile of paper in many different ways. You can search broadly by subject. You can dig deeply in one narrow period of time. If you're interested in a specific person, you might look in the various indexes at the archive and round up every piece of paper that mentions him or her, put them in chronological order, then slowly work out the pattern of that person's life, recognizing, of course, that the pile is undoubtedly incomplete. Some key events in that person's life may never have been recorded. Some of those pieces of paper have been lost or destroyed. Part of the detective work of historical research is figuring out how documents are organized in an archive, thus learning how and where to look for them. To give you an example of how this process works, let me introduce you to the archive in which I've spent by far the most time in the past decade or so, the Massachusetts State Archives. This archive contains hundreds of thousands of documents. Some of them have been transcribed and published, allowing scholars easy access. The vast majority, however, have not. That means I get to transcribe them, which is an adventure in itself. One of the collections of most interest to me at the Massachusetts Archives is the Middlesex Court Folios, containing all existing depositions and minutes from cases brought before the Middlesex County Court. I also use a far larger collection, the Suffolk Court Files. Given its name, you could easily assume that, like the Middlesex Folios, it contains court records from the Suffolk County Court. It does have those, but it also has lots of other unrelated material organized in a way that seems to have no recognizable chronologic or thematic system. Frustrated at the apparent randomness, I once asked the archivist what the organizing principle of the collection was. In reply, I got a short but highly illuminating history lesson. In April 1775, British regulars marched on Concord, Massachusetts, where their sources had reported colonial arms were being stockpiled. They suffered a humiliating defeat at Concord's North Bridge and began a desperate retreat to safety in Boston. The colonial forces laid siege to the occupied city, hemming the Redcoats in for 11 months and doing their best to block any supplies or reinforcements from getting to them. Thus, the British had to make do with what was already there. Supplies of straw used for stabling horses and stuffing mattresses soon ran out. 
So the regulars sought substitute materials that could, like straw, be squashed, stuffed, and formed into whatever at the time passed for a reasonably comfortable sleeping space. They found what they were looking for at Boston's State House, piles and piles of court papers. When the British abandoned Boston on March 17, 1776, a day still celebrated as a state holiday, court officials began the long and still incomplete task of trying to return the court papers to order. So that at least partly explains the strange disorganization of the Suffolk court files. It also provides an explanation for the many absent papers, incomplete court cases, missing verdicts, and the crumpled, stained, and otherwise damaged condition of many of the documents. Those physical objects tell their own history. In a very real way, they connect the past to the present. So, when you work in an archive, you're interacting not only with the documents, but with those who created and organized them, or burned or slept on them, generations in the past. One of my most memorable adventures in the archives took place over the several days I spent at the Massachusetts State Archives transcribing and researching the people and places discussed in this document. Most 17th century documents are not this difficult to read, not so faded and torn, not so minutely written. I was tempted to simply pass over this document when I ran across it while looking for something else. But it was in a folder of letters written in 1676 and 1677, the height of King Philip's War, an Indian-English conflict in early New England that was crucial to my research. So I picked it up and looked at it. I could hardly make out a word, much less string together sentences. But as I was turning the letter over, I glimpsed one word that I could read, Natick, the name of a praying town, a place where Christian Indians had gathered to better practice their new religion. Much of my research concerned these Indian converts, so I continued trying to read. The effort went on for several days. It was mentally and physically exhausting. My eyes blurred and my neck ached. Nevertheless, it was thrilling work. I often caught myself holding my breath, wondering what would come next. Even at the end of it, there were words I still could not make out. But I had been able to transcribe enough to open up a new world, to make connections with other documents I had long since read that helped me understand both the new and the old better. What the letter turned out to be was a set of proposals for the colony government about how to treat the Indians who remained in the colony after the English victory in King Philip's War. The suggestions were draconian much harsher than any policy the colony had followed before. They suggested a dramatic hardening of opinion against Indians in the aftermath of the war. Naturally, I wanted to know who had suggested them. But, frustratingly, I couldn't read the signature. Neither could the original archivist, apparently, as there was no entry for the letter in the card catalog. Most of you can probably make out the first two letters. Ed. So now all I had to do was compare the handwriting and contextual clues in the letter with every Ed living in Massachusetts in the late 1670s, and then I'd have a match. It actually took less time than you might expect. Clues within the letter, the writer's mention of his rural judgment and frequent contact with Indians, 
suggested that he lived on the frontier rather than in one of the more, more populous coastal towns. The letter was also liberally sprinkled with Latin phrases and classical allusions. So he was well-educated, perhaps a minister, as all of the ministers had college degrees. My PhD advisor, David Hackett Fisher, suggested that I try looking in Sudbury, one of the most westerly towns in the colony. I found a genealogical dictionary of the first settlers of New England, organized by town, and started reading about Eds in Sudbury. Almost immediately, I found Edmund Brown, the town's minister, educated at Cambridge University in England. I returned to the archive to see if there were other documents penned by Brown that I could compare to this one. There were. Four, in fact, and the handwriting matched. That was exciting. I felt like I'd unmasked the culprit in a murder mystery. Once I knew who had written the letter and could position it in the proper place and time, I was able to make many more connections with my past research. Once historians have made enough connections to explain some historical puzzle, they write about them and publish them, adding, hopefully, to the larger community's understanding of the past. For instance, the research I've just described eventually led to an article in the William & Mary Quarterly. The article provided my transcription of the letter and an explanatory essay in which I argued that the letter was evidence of a shift toward overt racism toward Native Americans in the aftermath of King Philip's War. That's the big picture, but I made many smaller discoveries along the way. I'll mention only one of them. Well into his diatribe against the Indians, Brown gave an example to prove how dangerous they were. He described an Indian named Swagan who leveled his gun at one bush, saying that he must kill an English man. Later, Brown described another attempt of an Indian, brother to Andrew Pitomy, who boldly took hold of an Englishman's horse's bridle and used some such like speeches. But then, with his truncheon, the Englishman so dressed him that the Indian retired from him. This will probably not mean much to you, but to me, it was a revelation. Several years earlier, I had written an article called Massacre at Hurtleberry Hill. The article described an event that took place in 1676 during King Philip's War. A group of six friendly Indian women and children had obtained permission to leave what was essentially a wartime reservation in Massachusetts in order to pick berries to feed their families. As they picked the berries, an English patrol rode by. They had a friendly exchange. The soldiers gave the women cheese and bread in trade for some fruit and rode on. Soon afterward, however, four men broke off from the larger party, returned to the hill, found the women and children, and killed them all. When the women and children failed to return to their camp, frantic family members approached Daniel Gukin, the English superintendent of the Indians, asking for his help. Gukin provided an Englishman to go with them, probably for their own protection. After two days' search, they found the women and children murdered. One was the sister of Andrew Pitomy. Another was his wife. A third was the wife of Swagan. The rest were their children. Swagan and Andrew Pitomy's brother were the two Indian men who Edmund Brown described threatening Englishmen in 1677. What Edmund Brown saw as barbaric behavior, Indians rudely proclaiming their need to kill an English man, 
becomes easier to understand when these two distinct cases are connected. Undoubtedly, Andrew Pitomy's brother and Swagen were driven by revenge and by terrible grief at the murder of their family members. It was by connecting these pieces, which appeared in completely different collections, that I was able to make sense of what seemed senseless. A door opened, and suddenly I got a glimpse into the anguish propelling the actions of Pitomy and Swagen. Undoubtedly, there are yet more insights to be gained, which will come through my research in this and other archives. A second reason I consider historical research an adventure is because of the opportunity it provides me to get to know people from the past. Some of these people are reprehensible. Some are admirable. I find my life enriched by meeting them, particularly in the case of the latter. Let me give you an example. As you've learned already, my research centers on 17th century New England, particularly the relationship between Indians and English. In the 1670s, that relationship was rent by a brutal war that lasted nearly three years. While the English eventually won the war, the Indians had the upper hand in the beginning. They attacked the scattered colonial settlements without warning, and there was little the colonists could do to prepare for such surprises, other than cram themselves into the strongest house in the village and hope to be able to defend it while the rest of the town burned around them. Indians assailed the frontier town of Springfield, Massachusetts in October 1675. John Pynchon was the leading citizen of that town. His home and mills were destroyed in that attack, and along with his dangerously ill wife, he was forced to retreat to a neighbor's garrison house, already crowded with dozens of frantic people. In a letter to his son, Pynchon commented on his turn of fortune. He said, I would not have you troubled at these sad losses which I have met with. There's no reason for a child to be troubled when his father calls in that which he lent him. It was the Lord that lent it me, and he that gave it hath taken it away, and blessed be the name of the Lord. He hath done very well for me, and I acknowledge his goodness to me and desire to trust in him and submit to him forever." I can't read these words without feeling deep sympathy for the writer. Like him, I aspire to be a follower of Christ, and his words dissolve the years between us. I admire his humility and submissiveness in trial. I feel a spiritual kinship with him. While discovering such personal connections is part of what makes reading and research rewarding, responsible historians constantly remind themselves of the strangeness of the past. As much as we feel we may have in common with those we study, they are not us. 17th century Puritans and 21st century Mormons do have some broad similarities, but they also have profound differences, both religious and cultural. If I too easily assume familiarity based on one shared feeling, I will miss the complexity of the people I study. I may simplify or misread their experiences. As I gather and seek to connect the pieces of a past life or past event, I need to remind myself not to jump to conclusions, because the next piece I find, in the same archive or a different one, may not fit the story I've been piecing together. It's detective work, and no evidence, however odd, can be ignored. I'm reminded of this frequently in my current research. 
I'm studying a 17th century Indian man named John Wampus, who could not be more confusing if he had deliberately set out to mislead future historians. He changed his name when it suited him, sometimes going by John White rather than Wampus. And his casual disregard for facts, or intentional misrepresentation, created at least one substantial error in the historical record that was perpetuated up to the 20th century. This was the idea that John Leverett, governor of Massachusetts in the 1670s, had been knighted by England's King Charles II. However, it was based on only one document, a letter written to Leverett in Wampus's behalf and probably at his dictation by a member of the King's Privy Council. No evidence apart from this misleading letter has ever surfaced to support the claim. I keep pursuing leads Wampus flung out, finding dead ends, or on happier days, finding interesting connections that helped me slowly understand him and the worlds he moved in better. The past is not tidy any more than is the present. Living people we encounter present us with similar puzzles. Some things about them are familiar and understandable. Others make us shake our heads and ask, what? But all of them, the living, the dead, the wampuses and the pensions, are part of the human family. As Carl Degler said, by studying the past, we expand our conception and understanding of what it means to be human. History is good practice in seeking to understand those who are strange to us. In that way, it serves a very useful purpose and can be very much an adventure. But history is also something that we consume in the form of books and articles. Many of you have had history classes in which you've been assigned to read academic monographs, books written by academic historians. Hopefully, some of them have met Edmund Morgan's standard of history as vicarious experience and given you glimpses of past people, places, and events that have broadened and enriched your own life. Perhaps a few of them have been as gripping as a good adventure. Sadly, too few modern works of history achieve that standard. Too few are the kind of history that Morgan talked about, vicarious experience. Too many of them are dry compilations of dates and facts, or complex analyses presented in such convoluted and jargon-laden prose that they put off even the most persistent reader. In a word, they are boring. The same could probably be said for every academic discipline. But history has less of an excuse for this failing than most professions. A brief look at its own past as a profession explains why. If you took a survey of departments of history in colleges and universities across the United States, you'd find that about half of them are in humanities colleges and half in social science colleges. Here at BYU, the history department is in the social sciences, but a generation ago, it was in the College of Humanities. Which is it, science or art? Clearly, as the division I've described suggests, it's a question open to debate. In the 19th century, a heyday of historical writing, most would have agreed that history, like literature, was an art. Historians such as Francis Parkman and George Bancroft enjoyed a wide readership for good reason. They wrote very well. The decline in this kind of historical writing accompanied the early 20th century move toward professionalization, 
that swept across a broad range of fields, including history. Newly formed organizations such as the American Historical Association established standards of acceptable practice and encouraged their members to be thorough and systematic in their work, to list all their sources. 19th century historians had little use for footnotes. To provide evidence for every assertion, scientific objectivity became the new hallmark of historical scholarship, leaving art behind. The shift to something called social history in the latter half of the 20th century increased the momentum in the direction of science. Social historians abandoned the traditional subjects of history, the politicos and presidents, colonels and kings, in favor of such neglected subjects as illiterate peasants, women, factory workers, slaves, the voiceless of society. To recover the stories of men and women who left nothing in their own words, historians turned to different kinds of sources. Rather than letters and journals, they combed court records, deeds, censuses, account books, and archaeological reports. They counted and categorized, made tables and charts to suggest patterns of historical behavior. These shifts have broadened the reach of history and have brought insights that have profoundly changed our understanding of the past. They have also contributed to breaking history into increasingly narrow subfields, focusing on increasingly arcane subjects. Some of this history indulges in what Sam Weinberg calls esoteric exoticism, specialized literature that may engage the attention of a small coterie of professionals but fails to engage the interest of anyone else. This scholarship, however insightful it might be, doesn't get read. Books that lack the art to engage their readers join the ranks of what historian Jerry Muller calls $20 bill books. What characterizes these books? You could tuck a $20 bill into the middle of one of them, place it on the library shelf, return in five years, and find the bill exactly where you left it. No one had read far enough to discover it. Historians, I might say any academic, who fail to combine art with science merely talk to each other, not to the larger world. But we all know history buffs, people with a passion for history. If they aren't reading academic monographs, what are they reading? They're reading the work of what academics call popular historians. People like David McCullough, Stephen Ambrose, Doris Kearns Goodwin, Joseph Ellis, and others. Many of these writers practice the traditional mode of history, looking at the presidents and generals, the movers and shakers of the past. The wild popularity of biographies of the founders, Washington, Jefferson, Adams, Franklin, confirms that. Some of these writers are trained historians. Most are not. Some of their books are well-researched and carefully documented. Some are not. These failings lead some academic historians to look down their noses at popular history, to dismiss it. As historian Jerry Muller laments, many historians have never been taught that they have a responsibility to their readers to try to write well. They consider it a luxury at best, a diversion from real professional responsibilities at worst. But popular writers of history may be doing more to shape modern appreciation of history than academic historians. The reason why is the one trait that all of them share, art. They are well-written and engaging. They tell a good story. I hope my description of my own experiences in the archives 
has persuaded you that historical research, while involving long hours in locations short on the exotic allure of Indiana Jones's typical research venue, can be both exciting and deeply satisfying. Historians who translate those experiences into the books that the larger public reads can convey that excitement to the larger public, but it requires embracing both the scientific standards of historical research and the literary standards of art. They open up new worlds of vicarious experience to us, expanding our understanding, enlarging our empathy for humanity, and sometimes telling a rollicking good story. That is never boring. Thank you. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is history, genre, and artistic expression. We've just heard from Jenny Pulsifer. After the break, we'll return for Christopher Crow with a novel idea. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is history, genre, and artistic expression. Next is Christopher Crow, BYU professor of English at the time of this distinguished faculty forum address entitled A Novel Idea. I've learned most of what I know about art, and it's not very much especially contemporary art, from the time I spent with my wife, an accomplished artist herself with a BFA and MFA degrees, walking through museums in the United States and Europe. Over the years, she's been patient with my low-brow, traditional view of art, and she's helped me see and appreciate the beauty and complexity of most contemporary art. But I have to admit that despite her guidance, I still have a lot to learn. In 2011, we spent a day in Liverpool, England, where we toured several museums— One piece I saw in the Tate Museum that day remains especially memorable. It was an untitled work by Dan Flavin, an artist who was, not surprisingly, unfamiliar to me. Elizabeth recognized it immediately, but I was baffled. How is this, this, a work of art? A few years later, as we strolled through the Art Institute of Chicago, we came upon this art installation. The free candy immediately appealed to me, but despite my wife's artistic explanation— I couldn't accept a pile of candy as a work of art. And not long ago, we visited the Hirshhorn Museum in Washington, D.C., and entered a room there where a contraption in the ceiling dropped a piece of white paper every few seconds. This was, I knew, some kind of art. We were in an art museum, after all. But I didn't have the background knowledge to appreciate it for what it was. Clearly, to me anyway, art ain't what it used to be. When it comes to art, I acknowledge my ignorance, and I understand, sort of, why contemporary conceptual art often leaves me flat-footed. Most of it lacks the defining characteristics, the traditional traits I must have learned somewhere along the way, of what makes art, art. But here's the thing. When I think about my various encounters with what I call non-traditional contemporary art, I have to admit that the three works I just shared with you have generated more thought, discussion and interest in all the paintings and sculptures I speed-walked past in the world-famous Louvre Museum combined. My art appreciation quandary can be explained in a number of ways, including lots of ignorance, but I'd like to explore how my understanding of genre might influence my ability to broaden my understanding of contemporary visual and other forms of art. 
Genre for a particular thing can be explained as the commonly accepted essential characteristics of that thing. If I ask you to imagine a pencil, you'll very likely envision an image that's similar to what I have in mind. A yellow wooden instrument about seven inches long with a pink eraser on one end and a graphite tip on the other. Consider now this image. If I ask you what it is, you'll probably say a box of facial tissue. But how do you know it's a tissue box? What are its defining characteristics? Well, it has tissue, you say, and it's a box, and it has a brand or label on its side. But if I remove the last tissue, is it still a tissue box? At what point does it cease to be a tissue box? Like this box of facial tissues, most things have defining characteristics, qualities that, especially in writing and literature, help us define or classify things according to a genre. We recognize most works by their defining, generally accepted traits. And while it's nice to know something about genre and what it defines, as a writer, I've learned that an understanding of genre can also help artists create or make or perform things. Important as they are to understanding of what makes something something, these traits are not usually static. In large or small ways, they often change and evolve over time. And in some cases, like those three works of art I shared with you, They may have almost none of the defining qualities that would have been expected a century or even a decade earlier. In the last couple of decades, my area of study, young adult literature, has undergone significant, interesting, and exciting genre changes. The traditional work of fiction, what we've always called novels, has been a centerpiece of young adult literature for more than a century. Novels have been clearly defined as extended prose narratives, works of fiction that told stories using setting, character, and dialogue to create a plot for readers to enjoy. Novels had a reliable set of rules, genre traits that readers, writers, and publishers accepted and expected. But as the 20th century drew to a close, the young adult novel began to change. I don't have time to go into a lot of detail here, but let me show you some examples to give you a quick rundown. Bull Run had not one or two narrators, but 16. Mouse, a long comic book memoir, was called a graphic novel. Make Lemonade was written in articulated lines, not prose paragraphs. And then Out of the Dust was composed as a long series of free verse poems. Whirligig blended time, setting, and characters seemingly at random. Likewise, instead of a singular unified plot, Holes had three distinct strands, each from a different point in time. Monster blends genre, prose, screenplay, illustration, to tell a single story. And in the days before texting, TTYL was a novel composed entirely in chat room instant messages. The invention of Hugo Cabret was a hybrid novel, half traditional prose, half wordless illustration. And then the arrival was a novel composed entirely with illustrations and no words. These are only the tip of the literary iceberg. Nowadays, it appears that traditional genre rules no longer apply, and trying to contain the creative evolution of young adult literature is like trying to draw boundaries on water. The traits are fluid and ever-evolving, and sometimes it seems that as soon as someone redefines what a young adult novel is or must be, Some author takes that as a challenge to write a book that blurs or obliterates those boundaries. As a teacher and as a writer, I've followed this evolution of the novel form with great interest. 
And as a writer who's also a slacker, who most of the time has no idea of what he's doing, I'm always on the lookout for an approach or a method that makes novel writing easier. And I have to admit that the student in me often wonders, exactly how long does a novel have to be? Or in other words, what's the shortest acceptable form this novel will be and still count? Let me illustrate how genre evolution has influenced my writing by telling you about my most recently published novel. And I've written several since this one, but they remain, probably with good reason, unpublished. I like writing historical fiction because it allows me to blend the creative pleasure of writing fiction with the intellectual pleasure of exploring history. A few years ago, I decided to write a novel set in the 1960s, a complex, turbulent decade in American history. And after researching the 60s, I settled on 1968, a year packed with civil unrest, political turmoil, and heartbreaking assassinations, all taking place while the steady static of the Vietnam War thrummed in the background. I learned that 68 was a turning point in the war for several reasons, not the least of which was a staggering death count. More American soldiers died in Vietnam that year than in all the previous years combined. In a manner similar to the daily COVID case counts we currently receive, in 1968, newspapers reported the war casualties every Thursday. That year, 16,592 U.S. soldiers died in Vietnam. When I'd finished my research, I started writing the story of a 17-year-old boy dealing with conflict at home, complicated by the specter of Vietnam. I wanted this young man, a kid who would soon be draft bait, to be forced to confront all kinds of crises and ultimately have to sacrifice for someone he loved more than he loved himself. With all this in my head, I pounded out a first chapter, then another chapter. But as the novel grew, so did my sense of despair. My story was boring. That's a terrifying revelation for a writer, and it's also a sign that a book has some undiagnosed fatal flaw. But knowing that first drafts are usually flush with fatal flaws, I pushed ahead. But as the pages piled up, so did the boredom, and I knew that if I couldn't fix whatever was wrong, I'd have to dump the entire project. I woke up early one morning stewing about this stupid book and what I could do to save it. One of the few things I liked about it was the odd appearance of the number 17. My main character was a 17-year-old born on May 17th. His father had played college football and had worn the number 17. I liked how that prime number had worked its way into my story, and I wondered, could 17 somehow be the key to fixing my novel? But how? Well, maybe I could divide the book into 17 sections, or maybe the story could be told from 17 different perspectives. What else? Well, haiku. They have 17 syllables, five in the first, seven in the second, five in the third. Could I use that? Maybe a haiku epigraph could head each chapter. Or maybe the main character could write haiku messages to his girlfriend. Or maybe, maybe this was going nowhere. Thinking about numbers is never a way to solve a novel problem. But then in my desperation, I wondered, was 1968 divisible by 17? Turns out it wasn't. But even if it had been, what could I have done with that? (laughs) What else? The death count, 16,592. Was that divisible by 17? Turns out it was. 16,592 divided by 17 is 976. Nice coincidence, but how does that help me revive a dying manuscript? After a bit more stewing, I decided to start over and to write a novel contained by a syllable count of 16,592, one syllable for every American soldier who died in 1968. 
I had zero confidence that it would work. With fewer than 17,000 syllables to work with, I'd have to leave out so much novelish detail that my book might fail simply because its many gaps would make it impossible to feel or read like a novel. But let me read you the first page so you can see what I came up with. There's something tidy in 17 syllables, a haiku neatness that leaves craters of meaning between the lines but still communicates what matters most. I don't have the time or the space to write more, so I'll write what needs to be remembered and leave it to you to fill in the gaps if you feel like it. In 1968, 16,592 American soldiers died in Vietnam, and I'm dedicating one syllable to each soul as I record my own losses suffered in 1968, a year like no other. The challenge of writing and revising an entire novel in 976 haiku stanzas breathed life into my dead manuscript, and eventually it turned out that at least one publisher considered it a novel. So how did all the strange modern art, the thinking about what makes a tissue box a tissue box, and those unusual young adult novels, how did they influence me? Well, if I hadn't already been familiar with all the genre-bending, boundary-blurring artistic work that came before, I could not have possibly conceived of something like this weird little haiku novel. My current book project is a cousin to that novel. After learning so much about the Vietnam War era, I wanted to write another novel that explores how the tragedy of a young man declared MIA, missing in action, affects not just his family, but his entire community. And I wanted to figure out a way to have the Vietnam draft lottery play a role in the story. I also wanted to write a novel in a non-traditional format. I wondered how many genre traits I could leave out of a novel and still have it be a novel. Could I write a story that approximated an impressionist painting? Could I use broad, vague brushstrokes that omit essential traditional elements of a novel? Could I trust my readers to fill in the gaps? Could I ignore chronology? Could I write a story where the main character, the young man who would eventually be declared missing in action, never appears, is never even named? While I was poking around for a method to this project's madness, I read a novel-y kind of book published in 1915, Edgar Lee Masters' Spoon River Anthology. That book got me thinking that maybe I could write my novel in the form of free verse poems written, spoken by family members and friends left behind by this missing-in-action soldier. And because I was already appropriating one American classic, I decided I might as well make it two, so I used the title and character names from Shirley Jackson's 1948 short story, The Lottery, in my story. This project's far from complete. I'm sharing with you a really rough, bumpy draft. Currently, I have 115 poems from 30 different characters, and despite its current lack of polish, I do like how it's shaping up. I'll conclude my lecture by sharing with you a brief excerpt from this novel experiment, but rather than read it myself, which would be boring, I've enlisted the support of nine wonderful and kind-hearted former students who will read the roles of nine characters from Lottery. As you watch and listen... I invite you to think about genre and your expectations of what a novel must be and how boundaries can be bent. And most of all, I ask you to consider Don Flavin's light bulb in a corner to see if it sheds any light on the potential of my work in progress to one day be some sort of novel. Thank you for being such a kind audience. Now, on to lottery. December 4th wins first place in draft for 1972. 
Men born on December 4, 1952, will be first in line next year for the draft. That was the luck of the draw yesterday as Selective Service pulled capsules from two plastic drums to determine the order in which men will be drafted in 1972. This baby, tiny, red, and soft, snuggles like he's still a part of me. He looks so fragile, and I'm learning to hold him properly, but I'm terrified I might hurt him. And despite the painful delivery I just endured right now, I would suffer anything to keep him safe all his days. We were born the same day, he and I, and I'm older by a few hours. We joke that I'm his big brother, even though he's almost a foot taller than I am. He was the new kid, and we rode the same bus to McKemmy Junior High every morning. He was tall and skinny back then, and awkward. I'm Brad, I told him, when we shared the sidewalk waiting for the bus that hot August morning. He said he was from California. His dad worked in Phoenix. He had a younger brother and a sister. He'd never been in Arizona before. What he didn't say, but what I could tell was this. He was scared to death. That boy, he didn't tease me like the others did. He was kind to me. Sometimes they said he loved me and wanted me to be his girlfriend, but they were liars. Kind does not mean love. It means nice. And he was nice to me. Sometimes he shoved boys who were teasing me. He said, don't listen to them, Twyla, and don't cry, Twyla. It will be all right. I liked seeing him in high school, but now I don't know where he is. I really miss him. Every time my brother touches the ball, the crowd's roar surges into a wave that crashes through the stadium. He breaks through tacklers like they're wooden puppets. Watching from the bleachers, I bask in his reflected glory, proud to be the freshman brother to the guy everyone knows, loves, and cheers for. My heart pounded when I snuck into school in the early morning dark. I felt like a thief, petrified that someone would catch me in the act. But all was quiet in the dim light of the hallways, I didn't need much light to find my way to his locker. For months, I've watched him from a distance, cloaked in my shyness and overwhelmed with love for a boy who doesn't know I exist. Looking both ways, I quickly tape a birthday card to his locker and dart out of the building. Mrs. Horner is talking about Spoon River Anthology again today, but this time she's brought in a record player and we're listening to people reading poems. The voices are way too somber for me, so I start word doodling. Draft, a light breeze. Draft, a first attempt. Draft, a cup or a drink. Draft, a vacuum that sucks guys into war. In English today, we've read a short story that Miss Gorell says is a modern American classic. Everybody in the village, including a cranky old man, shows up for this annual ritual where each family has one person pull a piece of paper from a shabby black box. And the person who gets the black spot has to have everyone in his family draw, even the kids. A man ends up with the black spot, and his wife starts whining. It isn't fair, but the family has to draw, all five of them, and the mom gets the black spot. The story ends with her getting stoned while crying out, It isn't fair. It isn't right. In this weird lottery, the winner was actually the loser. After Pearl Harbor, we didn't think. We just enlisted, swept up in the call to serve our country. And before I knew it, I was on a Navy ship in the middle of the South Pacific. I saw tropical storms, burning ships, and POW camps in the Philippines. And none of it felt heroic. It felt tragic and painful. 
I decided, though, that whatever it cost, this war was worth it to guarantee that my sons would never have to do what I had to do. Guess what? That cute boy from my sophomore English class, the one who used to torment me until I cried, I asked him to the Sadie Hawkins dance, and he said yes. I feel like I won the lottery. I always knew my oldest boy was an athlete. He never tired of playing, throwing, or running. And when he was playing, he never felt fear or pain. I can't tell you how many scraped knees and bloody noses he came home with over the years, always oblivious to how he'd been injured. I'll never forget the first time I watched him carried off a football field. Freshman year, some dirty brute rammed him helmet to helmet. I lost my breath as if I'd been the one hit, and I saw my son motionless on the field. Coaches and trainers ran to his side, and someone signaled for a stretcher. By the time they loaded him onto it, he was moving, and somehow I was able to breathe again. And soon he was sitting up and talking to the trainer and then standing up and telling the coach to let him back in the game. Thank God the coach sent him back to the bench where he sat and pouted until the game was over. But the images of my poor boy flat on the field and being carried off on a stretcher, they haunt me still. I used to hate him, you know. He teased and tormented me endlessly in our sophomore English class. Some days my tears spilled over before I could escape into the hallway. But a year later, he changed, grew into his body, I guess, but in the right way, less foolish, more kind. And I saw in him a sensitivity that had been hidden beneath his stupid sophomore veneer. He had always been easy to look at, but somehow he also became easy to love. In English class, Smith Smith said that unrequited love makes powerful stories. Writers know that readers understand love and longing and the painful knowledge that despite your love, all your love, it will never be consummated. It's like being hungry all the time while being surrounded by, tempted by, lured by delicious food, knowing you'll never be able to take even one bite. I forgot what day it was when he and I sat down to watch the 10 o'clock news. The news anchor talked while the screen showed some old men fiddling around with a couple big plastic drums, and a few stone-faced kids stood around. The camera panned the audience, and it was kids and old people, talking, some even laughing. He said it reminded him of a weird short story. The first men born in 1952 to be drafted, said the anchor man, will be those born on December 4th. And I said, hey, that's your birthday. At first, he didn't say anything. Then, staring at the TV, he whispered, It isn't fair. It isn't right. When he left, I wept. Not that he saw. I made sure of that. But watching him get on that bus tore my heart. Now I understand why my mother cried when I went away to war and why my father seemed so distant. The young soldier that was me looked ahead with faith in the system in the cause, and with a bit of patriotism. I'm proud my boy has that, but he's also got naivete. He'll find out too soon why they say war is hell. And I weep not just for his loss of innocence, but for the real risk of losing him for good. He's just like all the rest of us boot camp grunts. Shaved head, weary eyes, baggy fatigues, But the one thing weird about this guy is that every night he slides out of his bunk when he thinks everyone's asleep and kneels on the floor next to his bed, whispering who knows what to God. I do not like Americans. 
They treat me like a slave just because I work in the chow hall and do laundry. They call me ugly names and they leave a big mess. I cannot complain because my family needs the money. Most of the GIs think I do not understand English, but I do. And they think I am not human, but I am. We agree that death feels like a roommate. And you know you talk about it and think about it way too much. It lingers like a sticky shadow, stalking you around the clock. And you can't help wondering, will I know when it's coming? Will I hear the footsteps of death? Some guys believe in premonitions. The death tips his hand before you cash in. But I gotta tell you, we've got a permanent premonition. On patrol or on our bunks, we know we're just a bullet or a chunk of shrapnel away from the end. Maybe being a pessimist is a stupid kind of defense mechanism, but at least that way we won't be surprised. The first time I saw that GI, he smiled at me, but not like other GIs smiled. They smiled at me like they were hungry and I was the meal. Sometimes when I cleaned up in the chow hall after he'd eaten, he would thank me. Once he gave me a flower. That made me turn red, especially when all the other soldiers whistled and yelled, but he made them shut up. One time he asked me about my family. I could not answer, only cry. He said sorry and wiped away his own tears. Foxhole fever strikes when you're dug in, waiting for a firefight to start. The damp jungle heat makes you sweat. The machine gun fire and mortar shells make you shiver. The cure? Daylight and the all-clear signal. The Secretary of the Army has asked us to express his deep regret that your son has been reported missing in action in Vietnam since the 12th of November, 1973. He was last seen while on a combat operation when a hostile force was encountered. That telegram was only the beginning of our grief. Days, weeks, months of waiting for news. Was my poor boy dead? where he gnawed me like a cancer, and in time I realized his fate might be something worse than death. What's worse than death? Missing in action. Missing in action. Missing in action, missing. In action, missing. In action, missing. In action, missing in act. Ion, missing in act. Ion, missing in act. Ion, missing in action, miss. Ing, in action, miss. Ing, in action, miss. Ing and action missing in, action missing in, action missing in, action missing in action, missing in action. I never minded living in his shadow, but now, now that shadow is longer and darker. If you had asked me who of all the guys who went to Nam was the most likely to return a war hero, I would have said him. And I would be half right. He 100% is a war hero, but he has not returned. Sometimes I just stand in his room. His trophies and plaques and photos and posters fill the shelves and walls. His civilian clothes still hang in his closet. His stereo still has Credence Clearwater Revival record on the turntable. Sometimes I enter his room in the morning, watching the sunlight filter through the curtains, and I'll sit on his bed and turn on his radio to listen to his favorite station, the same station he listened to every morning for years as he got ready for school. Sometimes I stand in his room, awash with memories of my dear, sweet boy, and 
cry and cry and cry for him. Sometimes at night, I remember him from school days, and it makes me feel real sad. So I look at his picture in my yearbook sometimes, and I cry a little. I wish I knew where he went. I wish he would come back home. I brought my children, grown now, to D.C. to see the sights. The city overflows with history, museums, and monuments, and we saw them all. On our last day on the mall, we made our way to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Wall. Walking downhill, seeing the wall of names rise higher, I felt a growing sadness, a sense of loss long buried but hardly forgotten. One of my daughters noticed my pace had slowed, touched my elbow, and moved on, leaving me alone to search for his name. It had been more than 40 years, and my life had gone its own way. I'd had real joy and real sorrow in those decades, but I was not prepared for the emotion that swamped me when I saw his name and ran my fingers over the letters carved in black granite. All the grief flooded back, fresh and sudden, as I leaned against the wall, silently sobbing over his loss and mine. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was history, genre, and artistic expression with thoughts from Jenny Pulsifer and Christopher Crowe. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.